Welcome to Dental Dilemmas, brought to you by the ADA Council on Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs. I'm your host, James Purvis. Today, using the ADA's Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct, we will explore one of our published ethical moments through the lens of all five principles of ethics found within the Code. Non-maleficence, beneficence, justice, veracity, and patient autonomy. Today's question covers a topic that most of our listeners have dealt with at one point or another in their careers. And if we're honest, might just be one of the most nuanced and complex ethical dilemmas we could explore. I'm honored to welcome Dr. Jack Muller to discuss his previously published article from September of 2016. Today's question is as follows. I've always provided care to my spouse, our children, and a number of other close relatives. Recently, a physician friend of mine told me that, as a physician, it was not considered ethical to treat members of one's own family. Now I'm wondering, is it ethical for me, as a dentist, to treat my own family? I'm James Purvis. I serve on the ADA Council of Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs, and today I am honored to be interviewing Dr. Jack Muller. He wrote an ethical moment back in September of 2016, one that I think is still extremely applicable for every listener out there. Uh, the title's ethical moment was, Is it Ethical for Dentists to Treat Family Members? And I think every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have dealt with that in our careers. And it's something that we all think about, and I think it's an incredibly appropriate and relevant issue to discuss. So on that note, Dr. Meller, thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you practice, how you practice, why you practice, and any relevant background that might help our listeners get to know you better. Sure. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm actually retired the last couple of years, but I practiced oral and maxillofacial surgery in Rapid City, South Dakota. Since 1984, I went to dental school in Iowa, spent three years in the United States Army, having done a general practice residency, and then finished my oral surgery residency and came to Rapid City in 1984. What does being an ethical dentist mean to you? Why are dental ethics so important, Dr. Miller? Well, ethics to me brings to mind the word integrity. I see integrity as meaning following a moral code. It means being honest, good, virtuous, decent. But integrity also has a sense of completeness. Integrity and integer have the same root word. And an integer is a whole number, if you might remember from your math days. And I think integrity and ethics refer to the complete whole person. I think to be an ethical dentist means to be moral, honest, good, not just in their practice, but in their whole life. I don't think you can separate yourself from life and from practicing dentistry. And as a dentist, we're considered to be professionals, dental professionals. And in this sense, society recognizes us differently from other jobs or vocations. 
we've acquired special knowledge and skills after long and intensive academic preparation and examinations. So we're allowed to be called professionals, but society also expects us to act as professionals. And in that, we're expected to be honest, moral, have integrity. And in that sense, we're expected to be ethical. Well said, Dr. Mellard. And it brings <laughs> to this topic, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's something that all of us have dealt with. It's something that all of us have seen. You're practicing dentistry all day. You've been seeing one patient after the other. And suddenly your mother or your father or your child or your spouse or a close relative comes in and maybe you knew they were coming, but something changes. Something is different, whether we want to admit it or not. And we find ourselves treating somebody that we are intimately close to, that we've known possibly for a long time, and that we love. And what is it about this situation, Dr. Miller, that makes it so unique? Well, when you're talking about treating a family member, someone, as you mentioned, that you, you know or love, it gets into the area of what psychologists call dual relationships. Dual relationships occur when there's a professional relationship that might exist alongside a non-professional relationship, such as uh, professional relationships between a doctor and a patient, but also a non-professional relationship between like a, a parent and a child or a family member with a relative. And that's where the sticky part comes in is trying to separate the two relationships one from another. Do you feel that when you're working on a family member that you find yourself, I'm not going to say treating them differently, but do you find yourself in a different headspace? Is there a certain air that surrounds an appointment like that that might not be present when you're treating somebody who you're not related to? Well, I think, you know, if you're actually focusing on doing a procedure, you can maybe compartmentalize your mind to focus on that procedure and do that. And there's probably not much difference in what you're doing there. Although even in doing procedures, we second guess ourselves sometimes. But more so when we're dealing with a relative, there's a lot of different things that might enter our minds as far as how do we decide what we're going to actually propose as treatment and how are we going to advise a family member what we're proposing to do and communicating with the family member as a doctor versus a parent or or, uh, or a relative yeah i think you're right one thing that i've thought about is most of your patients you treat them well you finish their treatment you give them post-operative instructions and then you see them a week later perhaps you see them after a few days to follow up with them but many of these patients that we're treating that are family members, well, we might be having dinner with them that night, or we might see them that weekend at the church picnic or something like that. And it's sometimes, at least for, for me personally, I'm just being candid, sometimes it's a little tougher knowing that you might be seeing this patient very often during a period where otherwise you, you perhaps would not be seeing this patient until an appropriate follow-up visit. H have you experienced that? Well, yeah, sure. I never really considered whether it was ethical not to treat family members until I was a long ways along in my career. One of my younger partners asked me to take some primary teeth out on one of his kids. And I said, well, why don't you just do that? And he said, oh, no, that wouldn't be ethical. And I go, 
what do you mean? And he said, well, physicians in their code of ethics, it's recommended to not treat family members. And that's what first started getting me thinking about this as a topic. When I was a member of CJA, we had to come up with ideas for ethical moments. But up until that time, I had taken wisdom teeth out on all my kids because we've probably all heard in dental school, treat your patients like you'd treat a family member. The idea being, you think you can care more about your own family members than you can care about anybody else. But the truth is that there's a lot of second guessing, a lot of other thoughts that might enter into that, that maybe you aren't giving the same care to your family members as you might dispassionately give to a patient as opposed to a relative. It's true. And I've talked with providers and I've even thought about this personally. I practice in a small town and many of my patients are my relatives and some of them are my really close relatives. Spouse example given, but sometimes you'll, you'll find yourself doing something on somebody that you know and love that's pretty close to you. And whether you want to admit it or not, many times you're looking at the margin on that crown, maybe one extra time, or you're really double checking some things. And then you start asking yourself, would I do that on anybody? And I would like to say that I would, and I'd like to think that I do. But I think we would be lying if, if we didn't at least in part admit that when it's somebody you're very close to, you do go out of your way to maybe be extra conscientious. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. I try to use it as a teaching moment. If I'm doing that for somebody I know and love and I catch myself really being more meticulous than I might be otherwise, I use that to remind myself, goodness, I really ought to be doing this for everybody to an extent. You don't want to get extreme about this, but it's incredibly interesting what you talk about because you're right. In the Code of Medical Ethics of the American Medical Association, you're right. There is a statute and you quote it in, in your article and it says, uh, and I quote, physicians generally should not treat themselves or members of their immediate families, end quote. And I wonder if a lot of that deals with uh, privacy issues. I, I wonder, I guess where that might interface with us would be the medical questionnaire, getting a really good medical history on our patients. And many times that can involve asking some sensitive questions and but what are your thoughts about that when you have an immediate family member or maybe even a, a more distant family member that, that you know well and suddenly you're asking them some uh, perhaps more sensitive questions on their medical questionnaire? Yeah, and with young children, as a parent, you're probably pretty much fully aware of their medical history and medications. But when you're talking about teenagers or children that are getting close to adulthood or the age of consent, and as you mentioned, relatives or even close friends, medical practices these days, a lot of times kids can get care without parental consent or parental knowledge. And if you're treating them and you ask what medications are you taking, they may not want to tell you. Whereas if you were a non-related doctor, they probably would let you know their complete honest medical history. Same goes for a close friend or a or a relative and everything we do affects something else. Our teeth are connected to a whole body and everything we do can affect that. Medication-wise, treatment-wise, some things might not make a difference, but other things certainly could. So there's a conflict there. You may not be getting a complete medical history. And I, I don't know 
any way to force that to happen. There isn't any medical form or anything like that that's going to force someone to be forthright or honest even on their medical history if they're not wanting to share that. There's been some discussion as to whether perhaps the ADA should adopt a modified form of, of a medical questionnaire for people that are treating immediate family members. But at least in my opinion, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like these these medical history forms ought to be entirely consistent for everybody that you treat. I don't think anything should prevent any practitioner from asking the questions that need to be asked. And yeah, maybe you've dealt with it too, but I have treated close friends and close family members and something does come up where there is some treatment or medication that I need to give and there is something within their medical history, perhaps a little sensitive that does impact that decision. And speaking personally, I mean, most of the time, if something like that were to come up, we either kind of just lap our way through it or the patient is just incredibly unmoved and, and they're very stoic about it. And it's like, it's just anybody else in the chair. Have you dealt with anything like that? Or have you had any experience where you've been going through a medical questionnaire with a close friend or relative and had to really try to be objective or, or try to try to make the patient feel more comfortable about something that might be perhaps a bit sensitive? Well, Rapid City is not... Uh, a huge city, and so I have treated more acquaintances and people that I know that I can count. And the best thing I can do is just be professional. And if there's something in their medical history that, you know, obviously it's it's private, it's personal, and they have an expectation that I'm going to treat it that way. And ethically, that's what I have to do. I don't see changing a medical form to accommodate for that necessarily be appropriate. I think you have to have a complete form for every patient, no matter who they are, whether they're family or friend or just a regular patient. You mentioned practicing in a small town. I, I practice in a pretty small community. Our, our city has maybe 20, 30,000 people. And if you start getting the, the suburbs involved, if you can call them suburbs, more like outlying farm towns, maybe thirty-five or 40,000. And the counties that border us are pretty rural and my whole family's from this area, and so kind of like you, you kind of you kind of get to know everybody, and you kind of get to do things with people and see folks on the weekends. And one thing I've run into, and, I, and I'll ask you the same question: Do do you find yourself when you're practicing in a, a small area like that, surrounded by friends, perhaps close family? Do you feel that maybe more people than normal solicit dental advice or ask for treatment from you when you're interacting with them in the community as compared to perhaps a larger city where you might be more detached from the population you serve and perhaps you aren't surrounded by as many immediate family members? Well, I think that uh, um, certainly anybody that knows you're a dentist, I mean, the, the common joke is, oh, I heard you're a dentist, and then they start pointing a finger at a tooth in their mouth going, ah, rah, rah. but there is truth in that, though, even though it's not, it might be a joke in those moments, but people oftentimes solicit uh, curbside consult, I guess, is, is uh, what it is, and it, it has to do with familiarity, and you can't get away from that, but you have to still treat those professionally. I... Uh, I had a, a neighbor right across the street about six months ago who was going to winter in the Southwest asked me what I thought about them going over into Mexico for dental care. And I 
tried to avoid talking about it as best I could because uh, it made me very, very uncomfortable. And uh, you're faced with that. And again, being professional, not supporting or deriding a, something that is not really within your, your purview is, is important to try and hold up in that type of a situation. It's true. And we've all experienced it. You know, and I, I, it kind of leads me into my next question. It sounds, and maybe I'm, I'm jumping to conclusions here. Maybe <clears throat> I'm assuming something wrong, but in the Student Dental Association Ethics Code, there, there is a section that, that covers this. And you quote it beautifully in your article, and I'll, I'll quote it here for our listeners. It says, a, a quote, students should exercise discretion in treating family members due to problems associated with medical history disclosure, confidentiality, objectivity, and professionalism, end quote. What is the difference then between students who are providing dental care for perhaps family members and non-student dentists, actual practicing dentists? Is it the ADA's feeling that perhaps we, we're, we're more mature, we can handle this with more objectivity, is it something different altogether? Why do you think their code differs from the code of the ADA that is notably silent about this issue? Well, I, historically, I really don't know. I'm guessing the ADA code evolved sooner than the ASDA code. And I don't really know who was involved in helping the ASDA formulate and enact their code. But what I do note is that the words in there that you just quoted, they said the students should exercise discretion in treating family members. And should exercise discretion is one of those, hmm, what exactly does that mean? So it's not exactly a prohibition, but it's a kind of a discouraging sort of a statement in there. I don't think that the ADA code well, we know that it doesn't have anything like that, and I personally don't think that it should. There are certain circumstances where, in an emergency situation, for example, that you should treat a family member if somebody is in need. What's best for the patient at the moment may be the only option is for you to take care of them. And there's, as you mentioned, in rural areas, if it means traveling 60 miles to go get a dentist and you can take care of one of your family members uh, that's with care that's within your expertise and, and is fairly straightforward, then there shouldn't be a, a prohibition in the ADA code for that. I think the ethics of all this that we're talking about certainly should be taught. I don't think it's a secret. I think it should be mentioned and it would be good even in dental schools for having seminars about that. But I still not certain in my mind that there should be a prohibition. I think exercising discretion maybe is a good way to put it, but I don't see that as a complete prohibition, even in the ASDA code. I agree. And I think what the ADA has, if you look at the principles of ethics, non-maleficence, beneficence, justice, veracity, patient autonomy, if you just kind of frame your treatment of immediate family members through the lenses of those five principles of ethics, well, just by the nature of considering those five aspects, you're probably going to wind up treating your family member pretty ethically. And so you're right. I, I, I don't feel like the ADA Code of Ethics ought to have anything special in there because I feel like it's covered by the principles of ethics already delineated within the code. Am I right? 
Yeah, I definitely agree to that. When I was writing that article, you've got it there and you've probably noticed, I found an article from some physician group that I adapted to dentistry to address questions. You know, the, are you able to actually take care of the need that maybe your family member has? There's a concern about over-treating a family member or under-treating a family member or not referring a family member when it might be best to do so, not only from the standpoint of whether you as a parent are actually skilled to do the care that might be referred, but whether it would be appropriate even for you to try to do something like that. And I had the list of all those different questions to ask yourself. And I think those questions kind of focus in on those ethical things, the different parts of the code, like patient autonomy and non-maleficence and beneficence and so forth that you have to take into consideration. I think this is fabulous. And, and you, you reference it for our, our listeners. If you look at the ethical moment, it's referenced as under the resource number four. And it's a fabulous article out of 2009 that's referenced really well. It kind of runs through a lot of these questions. And I think it really is a good thing to do to ask yourself what is being asked in this case. And I, we're going to probably wrap up with this because I think this has been fabulous. But I think you'd agree with this that maybe at the end of this, we can agree that treating a close friend or a relative or even an immediate family member it might just be a pretty good exercise in dental ethics to do every now and then. If there's somebody that you know that wants you to provide them care, getting them in there and honestly evaluating how you treat them, how you communicate with them, and the way that you handle yourselves around them can be a teaching moment that I think any of us can use as we treat the rest of our patients. Well, certainly I don't think there'd probably be any problem finding some friend or relative that would like you to care for them. And it, you're right, it could be an ethical moment. There may be some people that you'd just soon not treat because of concerns about uh, all the different relationships and what are they going to think of you from now on if things don't go on. But those are things that you have to consider ahead of time. It's better to consider them ahead of time rather than having to face the problems after the fact. I agree. Well, Dr. Muller, is there anything that you'd like to add to this? Any thoughts on your mind? Any last words? Any advice for dentists, especially younger dentists or dental students beginning to navigate these issues? Any final words you'd like to leave us with? Oh, I think some of the best advice I had, a couple things, was one, to be mentored. I think, you know, in dental school you have faculty members that teach you, but there's some really good ones that can be found that not only teach, but guide and help you plan your career path, help you think about things, even look at the things ethically. But then besides being mentored, as you get older, you should be a mentor. And that way you can share your years of experience, your experiences like in ethical situations with younger dentists or with colleagues. And I've been fortunate to be able to have had really good mentors coming along through my career and also been able to be a mentor to younger dentists in my community, as well as younger partners in my practice. And I think that's one of the best ways to help other dentists uphold ethical standards is to be collaborative, to be a colleague. Well, that mentorship means everything. The collaboration, the collegiancy between our colleagues, and certainly what you've done today, both for CJA and for the ADA, is an example of mentorship and the fact that 
you've taken time to speak with us. I really hope that our listeners are impacted by this conversation. I hope it gets them talking about these things. I hope they go back to their practice and dig deep and honestly ask themselves these questions, considering how they're treating immediate family members and, and what that means for the rest of their patients. Dr. Muller, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to speak with us. And on behalf of CJ, we are incredibly thankful for this opportunity and are very, very, very grateful that you took time to speak with us today. Well, you're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. A final note about the episode, please see the show notes for a link to the original article and stay tuned for future episodes. At the close of the episode, continue listening to hear the sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct pertinent to the original Ethical Moment article. Thank you for keeping ethics at the forefront of the dental profession and join Sebja as we continue to solve dental dilemmas. Section 1, Patient Autonomy or Self-Governance. The dentist has a duty to respect the patient's rights to self-determination and confidentiality. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to treat the patient according to the patient's desires, within the bounds of accepted treatment, and to protect the patient's confidentiality. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include involving patients in treatment decisions in a meaningful way, with due consideration being given to the patient's needs, desires, and abilities, and safeguarding the patient's privacy. Principle two, non-maleficence, or do no harm. The dentist has a duty to refrain from harming the patient. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to protect the patient from harm. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include keeping knowledge and skills current, knowing one's own limitations, and when to refer to a specialist or other professional, and knowing when and under what circumstances delegation of patient care to auxiliaries is appropriate. Principle three, beneficence, or do good. The dentist has a duty to promote the patient's welfare. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to act for the benefit of others. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligation is service to the patient and the public at large. The most important aspect of this obligation is the competent and timely delivery of dental care within the bounds of clinical circumstances presented by the patient, with due consideration being given to the needs, desires, and values of the patient. The same ethical considerations apply whether the dentist engages in fee-for-service, managed care, or some other practice arrangement. Dentists may choose to enter into contracts governing the provision of care to a group of patients. However, contract obligations do not excuse dentists from their ethical duty to put the patient's welfare first. Principle 4. Justice or Fairness The dentist has a duty to treat people fairly. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be fair in their dealings with patients, colleagues, and society. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include dealing with people justly and delivering dental care without prejudice. In its broadest sense, this principle expresses the concept that the dental profession 
should actively seek allies throughout society on specific activities that will help improve access to care for all. Principle 5. Veracity or Truthfulness The dentist has a duty to communicate truthfully. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be honest and trustworthy in their dealings with people. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include respecting the position of trust inherent in the dentist-patient relationship, communicating truthfully and without deception, and maintaining intellectual integrity. Remember to keep ethics at the forefront of your daily practice and stay tuned as Siebja decodes dental dilemmas.